Welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. I know everyone is hunkering down due to the coronavirus, but being quarantined does not mean you'll miss out on any Untold Civil War. I want to give a quick shout out to the first responders, police, EMS, fire, hospital workers, and National Guardsmen who are working round the clock to ensure that we win this battle. Now for everyone else, please remember to wash your hands, cover your coughs, and use gloves. But for now, go ahead and stack your muskets, put up your pup tent, and let's delve into some untold civil war. Since the U.S. military's inception, American soldiers and sailors have had pets and mascots. There have been dogs, cats, mules, horses, and camels. Just before the Civil War, the U.S. military experimented with camels, and one camel became the mascot of the 43rd Mississippi Regiment during the war. To talk about this unique story, we have as our guest tonight America's very own Lawrence of Arabia. Dog Bomb is a real-world adventurer who is also a leading expert on camels. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for having me, Paul. Thank you, sir. Do you mind uh, painting a picture for my listeners and explaining what was happening in America at the time that sparked the interest in creating the Camel Corps? Uh, who took the lead on the project? Well, when, when camel feet literally hit the ground in North America in the 19th century, we were squarely between the gold rush and the Civil War. Of course, nobody knew the Civil War was looming. This was really a time when folks were just looking west, western expansion. Uh, most of your listeners would probably remember from high school U.S. history. Uh, but the gold rush was very much uh, a catalyst for that. And we had northern senators and southern senators kind of duking it out over uh, which route would be taken for rail to move west. And out of that cloud of dust comes a Mississippi senator and a Mexican-American war hero who, who would become Secretary of War, in fact, cabinet position Secretary of War. And this gentleman, uh, really, everything coalesces in him. All of the, the talk that had kind of been bandied about for about 20 years from the 1830s on about the Western deserts and the need for camels in America but in this Mississippi senator, really, the, uh, the whole project comes together. And, of course, his name is Jefferson Davis. A big name that will definitely um, become famous. Yeah, and, and some folks would say infamous. Um, Absolutely. Really, the, the long and short of the 19th century U.S. Army camel experiment, as uh, historians have come to call it, really kind of lies at the feet of Jefferson Davis, both its inception and ultimately its demise, which we'll get into. But for 20 years, from 1836 on, folks like uh, General Crossman, uh, Major Henry Constantine Wayne, had been putting forth reports to, to Congress uh, recommending that camels be imported and used in our Western deserts. In fact, maps of the day, 19th century maps, called everything west of the Mississippi the Great American Desert. Now, today we can kind of look back on that and, and it seems laughable because, well, Missouri and Kansas and, you know, our plain states aren't 
so deserty if you compare them to Arizona, Nevada, Utah, etc. But that really is how little we knew about the interior and the western part of our continent. So it was very forward thinking, I think, to consider bringing camels in as a complement to the, the traditional livestock already being used in those days, horses, donkeys, mules, oxen, for example. See, that leads into my next question right there is so they knew they had to they were expanding west. As you mentioned, mules and horses. What sets camels apart from mules and horses? Why would people want to use camels instead of the traditional mules and horses? Well, it's an important distinction here that the camels weren't brought in to be used instead of horses and mules, but rather in addition to. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah, you weren't going to get a 19th century cavalman, uh, cavalryman in, in the U.S. Army on the back of a camel any more than you're going to get a rodeo boy on the back of a camel today in 2020. Okay, trust right, me. Right, right. The American, <laughs> uh, Western American male ego hasn't changed that much. <laughs> but the camels were brought in, again, a very important distinction, brought in as a complement in addition to, not instead of. So the idea was bring camels in to pack water into those more inaccessible regions where the horses and mules simply would suffer for lack of water. So the camels were just another tool. Uh, I like to say that you don't use a hammer instead of a saw. You use a hammer in addition to a saw. These are two completely separate tools, and one complements the other. And what was happening overseas do you think that inspired the idea of using camels like where where would people have seen examples of camels being used that they thought you know what that's great i, I think it can work here for sure by 1855 when legislation is finally passed appropriating thirty thousand dollars for the purchase of camels the u.s military wasn't the first to think of capitalizing on the strength of this animal for military application. In fact, if we look back on history, the U.S. Army becomes the last army on the planet to capitalize on the strengths of the camel. You can look back to the Romans. You can look back, of course, to all of the, the Middle Eastern and North African tribal groups, Bedouin, um, Berber, um, various Central Asian nomadic tribes. The camel has been used for 5,000 years. It has been domesticated for 5,000 years. So what else was going on temporary uh, to this project? The French, of course, were using uh, camels in North Africa. The British were hiring camels uh, during the Crimean War. This is in the 1850s. So this wasn't a brainchild of the U.S. We had been observing other armies and taking notes and um, uh, filing reports. And, and it really coalesces uh, by the mid-1850s in that person of Jefferson Davis. It wasn't his idea, but it just comes together with his um, power in that seat of Secretary of War. And where would Jefferson Davis look to import the camels from? Henry Wayne had done his homework. This is a, an army major. Uh, he had actually been given the job of sourcing the camels, determining uh, where best to find them. So you look for places where you have uh, trade agreements, right, in those days. And 
uh, you're talking talking loosely the Ottoman Empire. Uh, camels were purchased in Egypt and what is now modern Turkey. Uh, the earliest camels we purchased, in fact, uh, would have been bought in what's now Tunisia, which is just slightly outside the uh, the 19th century realm of the Ottoman Empire. But we're talking North Africa and the Middle East in general. And there were a variety of breeds that were purchased. Surprise, surprise to your listeners. There are breeds of camels, just like there are breeds of horses or sheep or goats or dogs even. So there are various breeds, and, and Major Wayne, uh, Army Major, and Navy Lieutenant David Dixon Porter uh, were put together. Uh, Porter was in charge of the USS Supply, the ship that would actually transport the camels. So the two of them uh, were doing all the kicking of tires, so to speak, across North Africa and the Middle East, and uh, they ended up making uh, two voyages, in fact. Porter commanded the supply twice across the Mediterranean back. Um, the first trip bringing back 34 camels, offloading them down on the Gulf, Gulf Coast of Texas at Indianola. And the second shipment was 41, just maybe nine months later, between 1856 and 1857. These two shipments would total the 75 camels that would make up the U.S. Army Camel Experiment. Um, and if you don't mind, can we get into the, the breeds? Because I think that's interesting. I don't think many people know about the different types of uh, breeds of camel. The camels that were brought over, did they have one hump, two humps? How, how, how did that work? A great question. So there are two species of camels, and that is uh, defined then, of course, by the number of humps. One hump camels are Arabian camels, and they live... Uh, virtually everywhere we've had troops in the last 20 years. Um, their home, broadly speaking, is from um, Morocco in North Africa, all the way across the, the northern African continent, uh, the Sahara, the Middle East, and on into India. Now, when you cross the Himalayas and get into Central Asia, that's the realm of the two-hump camel, or the Bactrian camel. And both camels were sourced. The far southwestern reach of the Bactrian camel is what's modern Turkey today. So, as our folks, Porter and Wayne, were shopping for camels in the Ottoman Empire, they were able to pick up both species, the one and two hump, Arabian and Bactrian. Now, from those two species, this is where you find the multiple breeds, be it um, camels that are specifically for baggage, right? Like a draft horse, think a, like a Clydesdale, right? Or a Percheron horse. But there are camels of that variety, like a draft variety. And there are more lean, lightweight camels bred for racing, like a thoroughbred racehorse. And across the region where they were doing their camel shopping, they picked up a handful of all, be it baggage and draft varieties or um, racing or um, more lighter weight uh, race camel breeds, uh, so they brought them all and uh, you know tried to determine which was going to suit our needs best. And when the camels were coming over on ship, how was that? Did they get along being in such tight quarters, these different camels? You know, you've really got to hand it to Porter. He ended up modifying the USS Supply quite a bit. This was a naval store ship. And he ends up creating basically a barn, a stable just below the top deck. And this would be individual stalls, enough for three or four dozen camels. So each camel had its own stall. 
And on the first expedition, as they were coming out of the Mediterranean, crossing the, the Straits of Gibraltar, they had intended to head southwest a bit to the Canary Islands and pick up a few more camels. But the seas were really rocking. So they ended up having to kneel each camel down in its stall and securing it to the, the floor, the deck, with a harness. So these camels are knelt down at a point for three weeks. They're surrounded by hay bales to protect the camels. So if the boat is tossing a bit, the animals aren't injured. And after three weeks, they finally abandon the idea of going to the Canary Islands. They just want to get across the Atlantic and get these 34 unloaded. So it really shows you the ingenuity of uh, Lieutenant Porter and the care and concern that were given to this newly acquired government property. That is pretty neat. Now, I imagine the Americans who were bringing over the camels, not many of them may have had first-hand experience until that moment with camels. Did they think of bringing over camel handlers, if I can say that, who were native to the to the lands where camels are from? We really see again in this the forethought and the planning that, that was put into the project from both Major Henry Wayne and Lieutenant David Dixon Porter. They did hire some natives. Now, history kind of lumps them together in very broad general terms like Greeks, Turks, and Arabs, but these generally would have been citizens of the Ottoman Empire. So most certainly they could have been ethnically Greek or Turkish or Arab. And between eight and 10 were hired to accompany the camels. Their main job was to caretake the camels on board ship. They were each, however, given the option once they arrived in the U.S. on the, on the Gulf Coast of Texas, that they could stay on with the project and continue working with the camels. Uh, a number of them did stay, a number of them returned home. They, they collected their pay and headed back to the, the countries where they came from. But a handful stayed and actually became kind of colorful characters in the lore of the West. I'm speaking on that as far as uh, the handlers. I wonder if any of them had experience handling camels for the French or the British before. Did that ever happen or do we even know? There is some conjecture that at least one of them, a, a, a half Greek, half Arab fellow uh, who was born with the name Felipe Teodoro, he would later convert to his father's faith of Islam, and he took on the, the Muslim name of Haji Ali, which when, when said in Arabic sounds a bit like Hijali. That's certainly what the Americans heard, and that became his nickname. Uh, there is some evidence in, in uh, the historical record that shows that um, Haji Ali or Hijali actually worked with camels uh, in Algeria, uh, perhaps with the French. Um, nothing is really, really substantiated in that, but this is a part of that gentleman's lore as well. Uh, most certainly any of these fellows who were contracted to work uh, for the army with the camels would have had camel experience just uh, by virtue of uh, geography and culture. That's really neat. Uh, it, it is kind of neat to think about this, this one character working for the French and then working for the US. You know, He knows how to make money when it comes to camels. 
Yeah, and this but, this really isn't incompatible with uh, you know with an entrepreneurial fella of of those times. If there was work to be had, uh, there there would be work to be taken. Absolutely, he he knew his trade and and he knew where he could uh, export it. But uh, moving on from there, the camels come to the United States, and, and then what happened? Well, in May of eighteen fifty six, the first shipment arrived. And they are offloaded down on the Gulf Coast of Texas at what's now really just a, a kind of a ghost town of a fishing village. Now, back in its day, it rivaled Galveston, for example, with cargo and immigration. In fact, over 5,000 Germans became Americans entering through the port of Indianola. But I do like to think that the most colorful thing ever unloaded there on the docks at Matagorda Bay there on, on the Gulf would be those camels, 34 in May of 57 and another 41, or uh, 56 rather, and then another 41 of them in February of 57. And not long after the camels get here, does the Army put them to work? They march them overland, they get them into the interior of Texas, just north of uh, modern San Antonio. There's a small cavalry fort called Camp Verde. It's uh, nearer to the town of Kerrville, Texas today, but the 2nd Cavalry was there, and it was determined that that would be the home of the camels. And they get put to work calling supplies between their post, Camp Verde, and San Antonio, which at the, the time was the uh, where the quartermaster was for the Department of the Army in Texas. So there were regular supply runs, roughly 55 miles between Camp Verde and San Antonio. In 1857, 1859, and 1860, three major expeditions are undertaken that, that go out west, utilizing camels, not only camels, but again, camels as a complement to horses and mules. The 59 and 60 expeditions basically are surveying new supply routes and, and perhaps new uh, sites for fortifications along the U.S.-Mexico border. But it's the 1857 expedition led by a retired Navy Lieutenant Edward Beale that really kind of gains the most fame. Beale is given the job of surveying a wagon road from essentially Albuquerque, New Mexico to the Colorado River, the modern border between Arizona and California. In those days, there was no wagon road. Certainly rail hadn't extended west and Motor cars and airplanes were uh, not even on the horizon. So Beale is given the job of surveying this wagon road along the, the 35th parallel. And this road becomes Route 66. This is a major artery west. Oh, wow. With Beale and his camels. And on this expedition, could you just explain for my listeners, like specifically... What are the camels doing? We're not seeing, as you said, cavalrymen riding these camels and going out on patrol. Uh, what are the camels used specifically? Are they are they carrying water supply? They're carrying equipment. Yeah, on the Beale expedition of '57, what what you could really imagine in your mind is a two and a half mile long train of two dozen camels. Uh, a, roughly a similar number of wagons pulled by mules. You would have had military officers on horseback. You would have had uh, infantry right, on foot. And then a number of civilian folks who had hired on as packers, uh, scouts, things like this.
but it's a two and a half mile long train of humans and animals. And certainly the role that the camels played uh, on that, as well as the, the other number of expeditions, was packing. They were, they were pack animals. Now, Beale did ride occasionally. He kind of liked to show off. He was a bit of a, of a showman. But any day of the week, as you're looking from May to October of 57, as the camels leave San Antonio and are headed ultimately for Los Angeles, California, those camels would have been loaded with 30-gallon kegs, wooden barrels filled with water, plus camp material, be it uh, tent posts or canvas tarps, everything that would supply the group of uh, just under 100 men. And the camels were doing the, the lion's share of the work. Do we have any of accounts of what people who worked with the camels thought of the camels, as in how effective they were? Fortunately, there are some great contemporary accounts. There's a young man named May Humphrey Stacy, who was a family friend to Lieutenant Beale. He came along and was just a general hand, a civilian hand on the trip, but he kept a great journal, which today is in the form of a book called Uncle Sam's Camels. And it's a daily uh, entry of exactly what happened on the trail from San Antonio, Texas, all the way to Los Angeles, California. And without Stacy's reminiscences, we might not know half of what we've learned about the Beale expedition. He spoke in favor of them? Without a doubt, Stacy recognized the value of the camels. But really, I don't think anybody can beat Lieutenant Beale's own words, where at times he says that my only regret is that I have not double the number. Here's a man who truly valued and recognized the camel's worth. This is an animal that would carry corn and oats or water for all the other livestock, but not get a bite or a drop of what it is they carried. They would only eat what occurred naturally out in the desert, which to a camel is like a buffet, even in the, the U.S. Southwest. They would only water the camels every third or fourth day as they came across a natural water source. But the daily watering of the horses and the mules and the men, that was done from those barrels that the camels themselves carried but didn't get a drop of. This wasn't lost on Beale or Stacy or, in fact, Robert E. Lee, who received a report from Beale after the expedition and would ultimately receive reports from Lieutenant Eccles and Hartz of the topographical engineers uh, who went out into the Big Bend region of Texas. And it was all of these reports taken uh, in by Robert E. Lee, and then passed ultimately to Secretary of War Floyd in 1860 that influenced Floyd to go to Congress and ask for another thousand camels to be purchased. But the timing was really, really bad. Something was happening down south, and Congress knew they didn't need to overextend themselves. Right. So that goes into the next thing I was going to ask is with all this great publicity, great reviews, um, the camels are doing great. Why did the experiment sort of die off and, and what happened to those camels? Well, without a doubt, the camel experiment comes to a halt because of the Civil War. In February of 61, when federal troops withdraw from Texas, specifically Camp Verde, where the camels were, Confederate troops take over. And the Confederates didn't do a lot with the camels during the war. There are some reports of 
caravans carrying cotton south from San Antonio to Brownsville, Port Brown, our southern tip of Texas. Uh, this was a, a port not yet blockaded by the Union. So the Confederates were able to trade cotton, which the South had, uh, trading with the British, who had salt. So you'd see Confederate camel caravans carrying cotton south and then coming back hauling bags of salt during the war. But post-war, the camels so inextricably politically tied to Jefferson Davis become sold. We know exactly who bought them, where they were up for auction, what the two gentlemen who bought the camels did with them. But the camels were sold. The discontinued use of them by the military had nothing to do with performance of the camel. Again, this is an animal that served man now for right at 5,000 years. What was to fail? So we really can thank Jefferson Davis for getting the camel appropriation in the beginning, but then the blame for the camel's lack of use after war, at least uh, from a military or governmental standpoint, again, squarely at the feet of Davis. So essentially what happened was because this was sort of Jeff Davis's uh, brainchild, the U.S. military, U.S. government didn't want anything to do with him. Without a doubt. Davis's name was mud post-war, and I'm not sure that he could have put a man on the moon and salvaged NASA in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was inextricably and politically tied to Davis. And really, the, the best summation I can come up with is a great uh, historical marker at uh, historic Fort Stockton, Texas, in far west Texas, in the Big Bend region. It says that the camel experiment was a practical success, but a political fail. And I think that really sums it up. Absolutely. I, I really like that, actually. It really sums up everything we just talked about. Of course, we've talked about the Camel Corps. We've talked about a little bit about post-war, but we got to get into the Civil War because this is the Untold Civil War podcast. So who is Old Douglas? And how does he come on the scene? Old Douglas is the mascot animal for the 43rd Mississippi Volunteer Infantry. Now, this is uh, also kind of alternately known as the uh, Sterling Price's Brigade or the Camel Brigade. But we're talking the 43rd Mississippi here. And there is not just an emblem like a patch on a, on a jacket but a real live camel that serves as the mascot animal to the 43rd. And this isn't uh, unheard of. You know, there were regiments uh, throughout the war that had mascot animals, dogs, of course, uh, a bald eagle even. So Old Douglas is the name of this Arabian camel, the one-humped camel, who serves for the 43rd. And before your listeners get any ideas that there were camelback charges or there was a you know a, a rebel in, in, in butternut with a, a pistol in one hand and a saber in the other on the back of old douglas old douglas really had a pretty cushy detail during the war and that was to carry the regimental band instruments for the 43rd mississippi he was a roadie oh wow <laughs> uh, do we have any accounts from the soldiers that served with old douglas do they talk about old douglas 
fortunately, in the late 1800s, a group of soldiers get together for a Confederate reunion, and somebody's taking notes. And some old-timers from the 43rd start talking about Old Douglas. And somebody writes these notes down. If those fellows hadn't gotten together and told these stories, Old Douglas's story might be lost to history. And it's already kind of clouded with, with all sorts of lore and myth. But one that uh, I think we can fairly discount is that, well, where else would you have gotten a camel in the 1800s in America? He must have been one of those in Texas from old Jeff Davis's Army Camel Experiment. And forever and ever, that was the uh, conventional thinking of uh, old Douglas's origin. But some really great research has come to light over the last five or eight years. And it turns out that in addition to the U.S. military importation of camels, there was also some commercial importation of camels going on. Business folks who saw a good idea. And as early as 1859, camels were being imported in the U.S. We have three or four main shipments outside of the military importation. And they happen in San Francisco. They happen in Galveston, Texas. And they happen in Mobile, Alabama. In fact, in 1859 and 1860, a ship captain from the Canary Islands is known to be shopping various livestock, sheep, donkeys from the Mediterranean. And in fact, the Mobile Daily Register uh, from spring of 1860 mentions this, this ship captain, whose last name is Machado, has 30 young camels suitable for plantation work. And I think it's a no-brainer that Old Douglas must have been one of those camels. When you look at the map and you look where San Antonio is versus, uh, let's say, the Mississippi Theater of War, uh, battles, we're talking uh, like Iuka, Corinth, Vicksburg. These are where Old Douglas shows up. Mobile, Alabama is a heck of a lot closer to those that theater op of operations than he is San Antonio or Camp Verde, where the Army camels were. So to clear up that story, Old Douglas is more than likely not one of the Camel Corps camels. I believe that with all my heart. We've got to look at the logistics of the day. Mm -hmm. So let's just say in October of 1862, okay, when Iuka uh, campaign in, in northeastern Mississippi kicks off and uh, later that, that fall also in Corinth, up on the, the Tennessee line. Let's look at the realities of a single camel making its way somehow from Texas to Mississippi. I don't know how that would have happened. And I, I really place my bets on Old Douglas being commercially imported. Uh, we, we've got this young uh, lieutenant named Hargrove who joins the 43rd, and it's his camel. Where did the camel come from? Well, his, his family had a plantation on the, uh, the east uh, part of the state of Mississippi near the Alabama line in what's called Lowndes County. And that's a straight shot up from Mobile. I think his family bought Old Douglas and perhaps other camels and used them on their plantation. Old Douglas simply joined the 43rd, perhaps, when Hargrove joined. Wouldn't it be a treasure to one day go through some basement and find the receipt of that purchase? Paul, 
this is the thing that keeps fans of history and historians like myself so motivated. There's got to be a letter home from Lieutenant Hargrove that mentions a little bit more about Douglas. It's in a basement. It's in an attic, in a trunk, somewhere. We're so lucky to have what little we do have. You know, your own uh, focus on untold stories of the Civil War. Imagine if we know just this little bit about old Douglas, what stories we've lost that have escaped because somebody didn't write them down or share their own memories. Absolutely. And so old Douglas is serving alongside these uh, Confederate soldiers. Uh, he's helping out with the band, tearing their instruments. The soldiers love him, but he does have a sad ending. Poor Douglas. You know, he's, he's served dutifully for the 43rd Mississippi, uh, from Iuka to Corinth, uh, from the fall of 1862 all the way to early summer, 63. Now, the siege of Vicksburg begins, and the 43rd Mississippi is there. Old Douglas is there. And you can imagine, during breaks in the action, uh, during breaks from battle, the regimental band would have been performing music to, to boost morale in camp. And old Douglas would have uh, moved the, the band instruments from camp to camp uh, throughout the, the city, which itself was the site of the siege of Vicksburg. So old Douglas is just doing his thing. But at a point, when Vicksburg finally becomes surrounded, truly under siege, and no fresh supplies are able to come in, the 43rd, and in fact, all the Confederate regiments there are being choked out by the Union Army. You've even got the Federal Navy on the Mississippi blockaded on the west side. So nothing's coming in and nothing's going out. So let's just take the gentleman in the 43rd Mississippi. They haven't had fresh meat. They've been at this point already eating parts of farm animals, um, rats, um, domestic animals. Some took to boiling their shoe leather, make it supple, edible. They were even uh, starting to grind up black-eyed peas or field peas, they were called, mixed with water and bake them into loaves, which look like bread on the outside, but on the inside is still a green mush. So if the soldiers were, were reduced to eating these types of things, you can bet for a while they'd probably already been looking at Old Douglas. Horses and mules have been surrendered for meat. But late in the siege, we are told, a federal sharpshooter takes aim and takes out Old Douglas. You can bet the 43rd descended on him quickly, and they ate him. That's in the historical record. I think there could be some conjecture, though, about who actually did the firing of that shot that took Old Douglas out. Nobody knows. Was it Confederate? Was it Federal? But we do know that old Douglas dies during the siege just before early July of 1863. He meets his end during the siege of Vicksburg. Right. And I believe I've read a story somewhere that uh, there was a Union sniper. It might have been a, a Union officer that somehow took the shot, took out the camel, uh, old Douglas, poor Douglas, 
and he was avenged by the men of the 43rd who spotted the the sharpshooter. I, I don't know if that's true. It's pretty outland. Um, well, I won't say outlandish, but uh, it's out there. How uh, how often did people spot sharpshooters who knew how to hide <laughs> and uh, and they knew yeah. exactly it was him from how far? You know, sure, it's, it's sure. Tough. Do I want to believe all the romance behind old Douglas? And uh, he was taken out by a sharpshooter who was then taken out by members of the 43rd. It certainly ties it up neatly. But I'm not sure that war and battles and skirmishes always got tied up neatly. I think it might be a little too neat. I think what we can say without any reservation is that old Douglas dies during the siege of Vicksburg. Now, something that kind of adds insult to injury is that after 4th of July, when uh, Vicksburg uh, is officially surrendered to federal troops, folks set up shop and you see some early tourism, not not that different from uh, what we see today, in fact, with the National Park battlefields and the National Military Park. But uh, part of the federal occupation was... Uh, private enterprise, and there were folks who were actually selling camel bone jewelry. So old Douglas, uh, to kind of add insult to injury, right, ends up being a part of the earliest tourism in Vicksburg. Wow, I did not know that. Wow. <laughs> that you've got is... you, you've to appreciate, too, that there are only so many camel bones in a camel, right? So right. months and months after... Uh, old Douglas must have been cut up and turned into rings or trinkets. There were probably other bones from cattle, sheep, horses, mules, right. whatever right. that were you know, you were played off as Old Douglas, the Confederate camel. Um, but it does uh, then give us the story of Old Douglas. This is the only camel killed in battle during the U.S. Civil War. We look at the numbers of animals used just at the Siege of Vicksburg. There would have been tens of thousands of horses and mules, yet there was only one camel. And this is the story we're talking about today. And for my money, if this kind of colorful or curious story sparks an interest in folks about history, then let's keep talking about old Douglas. Absolutely. And moving on from there... What happens to the 43rd? Well, the 43rd plays out. This is this is mid-war, okay, 63. Okay. They do move on. Um, Vicksburg uh, is not necessarily the end of the 43rd. They regroup, and we see them again uh, at later times, uh, a little farther east. Um, but at this point in the war, we cannot overemphasize just how important supplies and supply lines were to the Confederates. I like to say that uh, probably most officers were happy that their uh, troops showed up in clothing, okay? Supplying uh, not just in material uh, clothing, but uh, the food stores, all of these things. This was uh, really a, a turning point for the Confederacy. From this point forward, it was uh, kind of a, a steady decline, I think most uh, would fairly say. Right. And we heard about old Douglas. We talked a little bit about the camel, poor camels. They got 
sold? Do we know who who were some of the purchasers of these camels? Did they get sold to the zoo or um, circus or something like that? And camels would ultimately end up in places that Americans more familiarly think of them today, zoos, circuses, the like. In those days, they would have been traveling menageries or traveling shows. But the two groups of camels post-war that uh, had worked for the military get sold in California. Beale's camels actually stayed out there, two dozen of them. And they're bought by a fellow named Samuel McLaughlin. And he ends up using camels to haul salt to the newly discovered silver mines in Nevada. It's about 25, two dozen-ish camels. Um, at war's end in Texas, there were still 66, okay? So throughout the war, the camels had bred a little bit. They had grown from 75 to about 91 total. But the 66 remaining in Texas at the end of the war were bought by a fellow named Bethel Coopwood, who was a law, and he ends up starting a freight line with camels from Laredo, Texas, on the Mexican border, all the way to Mexico City. And he runs a freight line carrying uh, mail and commercial goods for three years across northern and central Mexico before finally abandoning the endeavor because of banditry, he said. So he moves his camels back into Texas, and he does start to sell them into uh, smaller groups, eight here, 12 there, to traveling shows, menageries. But one of the big myths about the camels is that post-war, the army just let them go to fend for themselves. That didn't happen. This was government property. We know that McLaughlin and Coopwood had bought them. We know what they did with them and where they worked. But what some people fail to realize is that the majority of the camels brought in by the army were males. And they'd been castrated, which is not a great program start for breeding, for example. Right. Also only right. lived to be 30 years old. So all the military camels died out. Were there feral camels out west post-war? It probably happened, but not in any great number. Some of them may have actually been formerly military camels. But I would say that the majority of sightings of feral camels out west would actually owe the, the origins to these commercial shipments of camels that came in, kind of in concert with the military camels. But again, not in any great number, and certainly not to the degree where today we have a feral camel population out west, like we have mustangs and donkeys on, on federal land, right. say Nevada, right. Colorado. Uh, today in the U.S., we probably have about 5,000 camels. Those are almost all privately owned by people like me or circuses or zoos. And of those 5,000, there are probably two to 300 that are actually gainfully employed. And gainful employment in America for a camel in the 21st century means they're probably giving rides at a, a fair or a carnival or Maybe you see them at a live nativity during the Christmas season. But the idea that there are uh, descendants of those old army camels, it's, it's not happening. Do I wish my own herd of nine could be you know, traced back to some of Beale's camels that went west? It's romantic, and I would love that. But we're fairly certain about where all the camels in America today came from. And that would be importations in the mid to late 20th century. Well, in spirit, they're related for sure. 
without a doubt. And I can tell you, as I travel from Mississippi to Arizona and all points in between, sharing these stories with our family's camels, it is uh, truly an untold story of that era. Uh, probably 95% of folks I come into contact with all have that, that same response of, wow, I've never heard this story. So, Paul, thank you so much for allowing me to continue to tell this story. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. This is this is such a great story. I just think when we think of Westerns and out West, we think of John Wayne on a horse. I would love to add to people's vision of that maybe a little camel in the background, you know? You would get no argument from me, Paul. <laughs> so what happened? So we talk about the camels, but what happened to the handlers? These guys become a part of the West. Now, for sure, a number of these uh, native handlers, we'll call them, be it Greek, Turk, Arab, some of them went back to the Middle East. But for those who stayed, they become a bit of the fabric. High Jolly is one of the uh, the more famous uh, names associated with the camels. He becomes a government packer and scout. He's actually with the army when Geronimo surrenders. So here's a guy who has an incredible life story, and, and, and that's just leading up to his time in America. Once he hits America, he becomes kind of a larger-than-life figure. Hi, Jolly. He ends up dying in 1902 in Quartzsite, Arizona, uh, there's a great old legend that um, I can't imagine is true, but he had sidled up to a, a bar and an old prospector mentioned something about seeing a, a camel out in the desert and I jolly listens and kind of quietly slinks off. And the next morning uh, with his arms around this camel's neck, they're both found dead out in the desert. I don't put a lot of stock in that. Okay. Is it romantic? Of course it is, but it, certainly doesn't need to be injected in, into the already incredible story that is this gentleman's life. Now, another fella ends up coming to America, working with the camels for a little bit, and he moves to Mexico, and he's Greek, and he ends up marrying a Yaqui Indian girl, and their child grows up to become the president of Mexico in the 1920s. Plutarco Elias Ayes, and people called him El Turco because of his father's Greek or Turkish origins. So these are just some of the tendrils that the camel story creates in history in the West. And speaking about some of that lore, I don't know if this is true, but I have heard this story, maybe you can shed some light on it, of a camel being found with a dead corpse strapped to its back, uh, roaming around the West and, and scaring towns, people thinking it's, you know, the devil on a devil horse <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. The Red Ghost, it is called throughout history. And the Red Ghost, in terms of the West, is a bit like uh, the eastern states with Washington slept here, okay? Um, it's probably not possible that this this uh, ghost camel or this camel with the remains of a human corpse strapped on its back could appear every single place that history places it. But I think that it is compelling enough of a story, and it appears in newspaper reports from the 
1860s to the 1870s that there must be something to it. Who the body was, was that camel a former military camel? Was it maybe one of those commercially imported camels? We can't really know. The Red Ghost is a compelling legend. I think we can all agree on that. All right. And like you were saying, I'm sure that people, once they hear this, they're going to be fascinated and really interested in learning more. Are there any books that you would recommend that people go out and buy to learn more? There are a handful of great books written on the subject. The earliest is 1932's Texas Camel Tales by Chris Emmett. He's actually uh, got uh, first-person interviews with folks who worked with the camels in the 1800s. So Texas Camel Tales kind of spawns a a number of later books. Um, I mentioned Uncle uh, Uncle Sam's Camels by May Humphrey Stacy. It's essentially the journal of this young man who was on the 1857 Beale Expedition. And one of my personal favorites is Noble Brutes, which was written by Eva Jolene Boyd. And that came out probably in 1992 or 1993. And it was that book singularly that put me on this course. In fact, uh, when I was just a zookeeper taking care of all kinds of animals, including camels, somebody had given me that book and I read it with a fervor that I have never read anything in my life. And when I closed it, I said, I've got to tell this story. And that's exactly what I did. Fantastic. And are any of those these locations you mentioned, like Camp Verde, can people go there today if they wanted to visit the sites of the Camel Corps? Camp Verde itself is on private land, but a n- number of the western forts that are associated with the camels, be it Fort Lancaster, these are all Texas sites I'll list, Fort Lancaster, uh, the Alamo itself, which was the quartermaster depot for the army. Camels would have provisioned in front of the shrine itself. So these are public uh, spaces that, that can be accessed to kind of uh, connect the camel trail throughout Texas. But from San Antonio to El Paso, there are a handful of frontier forts, Fort Clark, Fort Davis, Fort Lancaster, Fort Stockton, all of these that have connections to the various expeditions moving west utilizing camels. And I've got my own seven-minute documentary on YouTube called, easy enough to remember, The U.S. Army Camel Experiment. Really proud of it. It's got over 21,000 views. And I know that um, students of Texas history and uh, U.S. Uh, Western U.S. history uh, appreciate it, and that can easily be found on YouTube. And I've actually watched that documentary, great documentary on uh, YouTube. Thank you, sir. Um, and we'd also like to talk about how people can learn about the stuff you organize because you do some great projects with the Texas Camel Corps. So could you please talk about for my listeners, what sort of projects you do and how people can get involved or get more information? Sure. Annually, our family's camels are, uh, party to living history events at a number of these various frontier forts that I just listed. Most of them are parts of uh, either the Texas Historical Commission or the National Park Service. And most of these sites will have an annual living history event. I'll be there in uh, period military uniform with two or three camels, a small military setup, 
uh, interpreting this bit of history, showing how the camels were actually used, how they were loaded, uh, what the equipment looked like, and really putting into, into life, into some context, these stories that uh, maybe people haven't even heard, or if they have, they, they, they've just heard, you know, bits or, or um, lore or legend or myth about. So uh, any of those forts, uh, of course, uh, every summer uh, we run a couple of public programs in Vicksburg, Mississippi to share the story of Old Douglas. They have junior ranger camp each year where they have a, a week-long camp for young people, and it culminates uh, with living history programs. Uh, they have artillery. Uh, they have all, all manner of interpretations. But I'm there uh, with a camel portraying Old Douglas at Vicksburg as well. That happens each June and July in Vicksburg, Mississippi at the National Military Park. So there are a number of opportunities to catch the camels uh, in life. Uh, sharing this story with folks in the public. Fantastic. And uh, what is the website where people can go to get more information? My website is texascamelcorps.com, C-O-R-P-S. Um, also on Facebook, uh, you can follow our camel exploits at uh, the U.S. Army Camel Experiment or on my personal Facebook page, which is simply my name, Doug Baum. Perfect, perfect. And I'm definitely going to put a link in the uh, the episode notes so people can just click and be directed directly to you. Thank you uh, so much, Paul. So I think that brings us right about that time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing this story. This was a story that I've had a number of people asking for, and we absolutely got the right person to tell this story. So thank you so much. Much appreciated, and thank you for the opportunity to share the story. I hope you enjoyed that episode while you did the laundry, paced your apartment while quarantined, rode around McClellan's army, repelled Pickett's charge, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Craig Duncan for allowing me to use his music on my podcast, and please go to the podcast's Facebook and Instagram page and like and follow us on there. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to give us a review on iTunes. It really does help get the word out. So bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next exciting episode.